For the next 15 seconds, picture yourself in a small town. Historic buildings with galleries, restaurants, micro distilleries, forested ridgelines on the horizon, wide alpine meadows, evergreen forests threaded with trails, friendly locals eager to guide you. And if you're not quite ready to leave this fantasy, chances are you're our kind. And you should check out visitparkcity.com right away. Park City, Utah, for the mountain kind. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Rees listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. And just in case you might have missed it, LeVar Burton Reads is hitting the road, starting Halloween. I had such an amazing time traveling around and doing live tapings of the podcast this past spring with authors and local musicians. So come on out and bring a friend to shows in these selected cities. Washington, D.C. is where I began. Then on up into Toronto, Ontario, T.O., one of my favorite cities. Back down to Brooklyn. Looking very much forward to being there. Collingswood, New Jersey. That's the Philly area for folks wondering why Collingswood? Well, because it's near Philadelphia. Then we're going to Boston, then Austin, Texas, Dallas, and then Atlanta to complete that Southwest kind of swang. So check out LeVarBurtonPodcast.com slash tour for updates and ticket links. Now, I am Really excited to read something for you today by Lavi Tidar. I've been reading and enjoying his stories for years. Lavi is a heavy hitter in the sci-fi and fantasy world. His novel, Osama, won the World Fantasy Award. And this was in a year when it was pitted against books by Stephen King and George R.R. Martin, no less. So Lavi is no slouch. He was raised on a kibbutz in Israel. He's also lived in South Africa, Laos, the Pacific island of Vanuatu, and the UK where he currently resides. Though our story today is set in China, you might catch some references to some of the other places Lavi has lived and visited over the years. Listen for the foods, the currency, the names. The story follows Isham, a man who sells lottery tickets in the city of Iwu. Now, Iwu is a real-life market city with the largest wholesale market in the world. Its trading history goes back to the 1600s. And by setting it in Iwu, we get this interesting cross-section of people coming through the market stalls. Traders from different countries, people with all kinds of wishes that are granted by the lottery. So, if you're ready... Let's 
Take a deep breath. And begin. Iwu by Lavi Tadar. In all his time working for the lottery, Shamuddin had only ever sold three winning tickets. But as a consequence, he had seen three miraculous things. The first purchaser, years before, was one of his first ever customers. She was a young, dark-haired girl with a look of intense concentration on her face as she handed over the cash money. And she retained one coin, a Martian shekel with the Golda Meir simulacrum's head on, to scratch the card, which she did with a slow, seesawing motion, gently blowing the cheap dust of silver foil as she searched for her luck. Then her face changed. Not open disappointment, or stoic acceptance of the sort that people always wore, nor the greedy desperation that meant they would ask for another ticket, and then another, until their money ran out. But neither was it amazement, or shock, or any reaction he'd have expected were someone to get lucky, for someone to win. It was more like she had found something that she had always half-suspected was there that she was merely able to confirm a thing she'd always instinctively known. And then she smiled. And then she turned into a black-headed ibis and flew into the sky. The second one was two years later, and it was a much more ordinary affair. The winner was a middle-aged man from Guangzhou with a comb-over and bottle-top glasses and a nice smile. He had the sort of face that smiled easily and sometimes ruefully at the world's foibles. It was the third card he'd bought and he was chatting to Isham all this while, a running commentary about the day's weather. It was humid. The cost per unit of elastic hairbands, he had recently found a new manufacturer who could make them a point cheaper, saving him thousands. And his daughter's new boyfriend, a no-good know-it-all, but what were you going to do, kids today, and all that. Then the silver foil all came off, and the man's face slackened, and his lips stopped moving, and he rocked in place as though he'd been struck, and Asham said, Sir, sir! Are you all right? And the man nodded over and over and finally gave him a goofy grin. Would you look at that, he said. A car appeared round the corner and came to a stop beside the stall. It was a long black limousine with darkened windows. The doors opened, and two men in dark suits and sunglasses stepped out. They both had short-cropped hair and were very trim and fit. 
One held the limousine door open. The other said, Congratulations, sir. Please, come with us. But where are we going? The man said. It's only a short ride to the airport, sir. The airport? To get to the Singapore Beanstalk, sir. It isn't a long flight, sir. Singapore? I've never been to Singapore. It will only be a short stop, sir. A pod on the Beanstalk is already reserved for you. Here, sir, your ticket. My ticket? For your journey. The man stared at the ticket. He looked pleadingly at Eshamuddin. So, it's really true, he said. I won? I won the lottery? Yes, sir. I've always wanted to see Mars, the man said. Olympus Mons and Tongyun City and the Valley's Marineris Kibutzim. Whatever your true heart's desire, sir, the man said. It was the same legend that was etched in now dusty letters above Esham's lottery stall. The same legend that was on every lottery stall anywhere. That was on every ticket. But my daughter, my job, I can't just... Elastic hairbands, he said desperately. The car waited. Esham waited. The two men in their short, cropped hair and smart black suits and ties waited. The man mopped his brow. I suppose, he said. Sir? He meekly let them lead him to the car. He folded into the cool interior, and the door shut, and the two men disappeared inside. The car started up and drove away, and the man was gone. To Mars, Esham supposed. Mars, said Mrs. Lee. She pushed her way to the booth and leered at Esham. Who in their right mind would want to go to Mars, boy? She shoved a handful of coins across the counter. Give me a ticket. Esham took the money and gave her a ticket. You could count on Mrs. Lee to buy a few at a time. He wondered what her true heart's desire was. That's none of your damn business, boy, Mrs. Lee said. She scratched the card with maniacal glee. The third time he witnessed a miracle, it wasn't anything like that. It was a foreigner, a trader, on a purchasing trip to Iwu from one of the coastal African states. He was with a couple of colleagues, and he bore an amused smile as he paid for the ticket. It was just something to do, a local custom, something to pass the time, he seemed to suggest. He scratched the card and looked at it with the same tolerant smile, and he began to say, in bad Mandarin, what does this mean when it happened? It was like a curtain swished behind the man. 
The man half-turned, looked, and there was an expression on his face that Esham couldn't read. The man reached out one hand and touched the curtain. He prodded it with his fingers. He took a half-step and then another. There was nothing there, and yet there was. He half-turned back and smiled. Then he stepped through into the whatever it was and just disappeared. His two colleagues did a lot of shouting, and Isham did a lot of hand-waving and shouting back, and finally the market police came along, and they did a little shouting too, and then after a while, everyone left. Isham stayed. Of course, but business was slow, and after another hour, he closed the stall for the day. It had been a strange one. He wondered where the man went and what he saw, and whether he was happy there. He ate a bowl of crossing-the-bridge noodles at a Yunnanese stall, then had sweetened mint tea at a Lebanese cafe near the Zone 7 mosque. And then he walked slowly back. Two blind musicians played the Gulchen outside Pigsty Alley, and the air was perfumed with wisteria. The smell was manufactured in the factories of Zone 10 at a very reasonable per-unit cost. That night, Sham drew the walls of his stall home down and sat inside. He tuned in to the latest episode of his favorite Martian soap, Chains of Assembly. In the air before him, the beautiful Maharani argued with Johnny Novum inside her domed palace as ice meteorites fell onto the red sands far in the distance. Asham ate shaved ice with lychee syrup. It had been a strange day, he thought. Isham was born in Iwu, but wasn't Chinese. Many native-born residents of Iwu weren't. His father had been a small goods trader from the Ecclesiastical Confederacy of Iran, and his mother was an interpreter for a mining company based in the Belt, which purchased mass-market goods for the asteroid longhouses. A space dyad. She often complained of discomfort in Earth's gravity, not because she was not used to it, but because, unlike on the longhouses, there was simply no escaping it, even for a time. In the up and out, she told the young Esham one could simply kick off into a free-fall zone, where you could fly, where you could be free. He didn't know what his mother's true heart desire would have been. He remembered them both as loving parents, which is not to say they did not sometimes shout at him in frustration, or that they did not fight, which they did. But when he thought of them, what he remembered first was love. His father was away a lot, 
a train man, as they called them, forever riding the rails along the Silk Road from Iwu to Tehran. He'd come back bearing gifts for Isham's mother. Saffron and dried apricots, tiny pickled cucumbers, rosewater, and golpar. And for Esham, he'd bring back little handmade curios, wood and wire intertwined with wild tech components, toys that existed in both the virtual and the real. They died in a simple transport capsule accident on a visit to the underwater cities of Hainan. The new cities were the jewels of the South China Sea, glittering biospheres abundant in offshore aquaculture, home to millions of people who lived and breathed underwater. It was just a stupid accident, the sort that never even made the news. He was still only a boy when it happened. After that, the state took him in. For a long time, he'd had the dream of buying lottery tickets until he'd found a winning one, and then the lottery would bring his parents back to life. Even though he knew it was just a dream, even the lottery could not bring back the dead. The lottery really began as just another roadside tradition, around the time they rebuilt Iwu from scratch into the lotus flower shape it had now. Each petal a zone, each zone a market to rival all other markets. There was nothing, it was said, that you couldn't buy in Iwu. But mostly, it was the small stuff, the domestic stuff, still, then, and now. Key rings and bath mats and toothbrushes, raincoats and mascaras, clocks and toys. The factories in the outer zones never rested. The traders only ever slept in shifts, and the trains never stopped coming. The first lottery was on the same scale. It was really just a community sort of thing. People coming together to make your life a little easier, a little better. When people would get together and buy tickets and each would win something they needed, help with repairs on their house, or delivery assistance for groceries, or someone to bring you food while you were sick, if you didn't have family to care for you. At least, that was the story. On how the lottery really came to be, there were as many stories as there were fish in the fish market, or toys in the toy market, or pins in the pen stalls, or fake snow in the Christmas pavilion. They said the lottery used Shenzhen ghost market tech. They said it was run by the Kunming toads, who churned out verboten technology and traded in illicit info weapons. Or they said the lottery was run from off-world, and you know what people in the up and out were like. Isham didn't know. He didn't even think to ask. The lottery just was, and it gave a few people every year something impossible and precious. Their true heart's desire. 
And it gave him, Esham, a job. Every morning he sat up in his cot and brushed his teeth in the sink and washed his face and his armpits and he drank a cup of tea. Then he unfolded the lottery booth walls and prepared to welcome the day. If the previous day's take was good, he might walk to a nearby stall for a bowl of kanji. If the take was not good, he would usually forego breakfast. His accommodation was free, and his needs were few, and only the rich, as the old proverb goes, have time to dream. But that's what the lottery was for, he thought, for the poor to have dreams. Occasionally, he would move the lottery stall around the city. There were many lottery stalls, but they all traveled if they needed to. Currently, he was stationed in Zone 7, where the automata market was. Every late afternoon, he'd shut the booth for an hour or so and take a stroll. The pedal of Zone 7 rose high into the air above the central pistol. From up here, you could look all over the city. To the Zone pedals and their markets heaving with humanity and goods. And to the mountains that ranged Yiwu. And to the outer zones where the workers lived in the vast container shanties and grew their hydroponics food in green growtainers. And then beyond to the ring of factories. The pedals were designed to catch wind and sun and rain, to reuse everything, to draw power from the elements. If the previous day's take was good, he might buy himself a modest lunch of some sort, Vietnamese banh mi or pho, or an Egyptian falafel, or a bowl of noodles. If the take was good, he might go to the public baths to wash. While the city operated on a range of digital currencies, the lottery only ever accepted coins. Why that was, he didn't know. They did not mind the type of currency, so each day, Asham would sort out the day's take by type and place of origin. Martian shekels and rubles alongside belt-issued ringgit. Local yuan, Micronesian dollars, lunar vatu. The list went on and on. Each evening, he would pack the coins and place them in the appropriate bin provided. And each morning, they would be gone. Isham had his regulars. Mrs. Lee, who owned a factory that made snow globes, visited him every day. Mr. Mansour, who came each year to Iwu to buy lights, so many lights that he shipped to his distant home, would visit avidly when he was in town. He could always be relied upon to buy the extra ticket, and his face always bore a hopeful look. And there were others. They came and went like the tides.
In the late afternoon, a street cleaning machine crept along past the road, humming cheerfully to itself. Trams whooshed overhead on their graceful spirals, moving between the zones. The air smelled of shoe polish, frangipani, and the recycled air blown out of a thousand air conditioners. It was then that he saw her, emerging from the market doors out into the hot street beyond. The woman was no taller than Esham, but she moved with a quiet purpose that he envied, a sense of completeness, a comfort in one's own skin he had never possessed. Esham was the sort of person who skulked through life, careful to avoid any potential for trouble. He had few friends and fewer vices, and he never played the lottery. The woman crossed the road and came to his stall and stopped. The laminated card attached to her lanyard said her name was Miss Shu. Hello, she said. The smile she offered him would have broken his heart had he opened his heart to it. Hello, he said. She had just an ordinary face, the sort you would easily lose in a crowd. Her hair was cut in a fashionable style that was nevertheless a year or so behind whatever the current trend was in Shanghai that spring. Her hand rested on the counter, lightly. Her fingers tapped lightly on the surface. He looked away from her. May I have a card? She said. Of course. She smiled when he gave it to her. She scratched it with an old 50 Mongo coin. She looked at it, then shrugged, and left it on the counter. Thank you, she said. You're welcome. He watched her walk away. This became a daily routine. He came to await the moment when Miss Xu appeared out of the market entrance. He'd watch her cross the road. He'd always wait. She'd say, hello. He'd say, hello. She'd ask for a card, and he would pass one to her. And she'd pay him with whatever coins she happened to carry that day. Rubles, dinars, one time with a gold sovereign. Then she'd frown, shrug, give him a final smile, or say goodbye quietly and walk away. Sometimes, on his break, he would search for her in the market. He'd pass the rows of artificial cockatoos and peacocks and the little singing birds in their cages with their bright glass eyes and the enclosure of the animatronics tigers and the dodo arcade, but only once he thought he saw her at a distance speaking to a man in a navy blue suit. But he could not be sure, and when he came closer, she was gone, if it had been her at all. He took to eating his lunch at a Melanesian stall, serving up soup, blah, balak, wetum rice. Simple, 
filling fare, and cheaply priced, a place popular with many of the Pacific traders. It was across the aisle from a stall that sold genuine synthetic bear's gallbladder. And the girl who worked at that stall would often take her lunch around the same time. Don't you remember me? She said. Issa, from the home. Issa? Isham said. Of course, of course. I've seen you around, she said. So, you went with the lottery. I, I did. You? Well... You can see. Artificial gallbladders. I have my own place now, she said. It's in Container Town, but I'm there alone. No one else. He knew what she meant. Growing up the way they did, they were never alone. There were always others. Nights filled with snores and farts and someone crying or talking in their sleep. Me too. He said, it isn't much, but she smiled. I know. She sat down across from him with her tray. You ever think of going away, she said, Mars or the moon or Beijing? He thought about it. No, he said. She nodded. Me neither. She spooned beef stew over the rice and ate, wasting nothing. And he did the same. For the next 15 seconds, picture yourself in a small town. Historic buildings with galleries, restaurants, micro-distilleries. Forested ridgelines on the horizon. Wide alpine meadows. Evergreen forests threaded with trails. Friendly locals eager to guide you. And if you're not quite ready to leave this fantasy, chances are you're our kind. And you should check out visitparkcity.com right away. Park City, Utah, for the mountain kind. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... ...trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own... ...leave the kids with grandma... ...trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Now, let's get back to our story. 
The way it happened wasn't supposed to happen. There was something wrong, in hindsight, with the whole day. Some intimation of disaster one could trace in the slight rise in air pressure, or in the swoosh of the trams overhead, or in the clinking of coinage. Mrs. Lee came and bought three tickets and left with a huff. Mr. Mansour came by and bought one and stopped to chat for a little while before he too left. A couple of monks went past and did not buy tickets. A bulk buyer from the Martian Soviet came and got a ticket, and then a trader from Harben. It was just an ordinary day, the way Esham liked it. Order and routine, a knowing of what was expected. At the usual time, Miss Chu emerged from the market doors. She crossed the road. She came to the stand and smiled at him and said, Hello, and asked for a ticket. He sold her one. She scratched the silver foil with a ten-bot coin. She looked at the card, almost puzzled, then shrugged and left it on the counter. No luck, Esham said. She pushed the ticket towards him. He glanced down, barely registering the impossible at first. The three identical symbols of a beckoning gold cat that meant it was a winning ticket. He glanced up at Miss Sue. Nothing happened. Thank you. Miss Chu said. She gave him a last bemused smile, then turned and walked away. Still, nothing happened. He stared at the good luck cats. Nothing. Miss Chu crossed the road and walked away the way she always did until she turned a corner and was out of sight. Still, nothing happened. They said when old Mr. Chow won, it had rained fish all that day all over the city. They said that when Mrs. Kim won, statues came to life and danced for a full five minutes to a K-pop song before they suddenly and abruptly became stone again. They said when Mr. Huang won, a dragon flew over the city and summer flowers bloomed. And when young Mrs. Yuan won, she vanished and reappeared in digital form as a character on Chains of Assembly, where she had a brief but intense romance with Johnny Novum before falling afoul of Count Victor's machinations against the beautiful Maharani, after which she was not seen again on the program. Isham stared after Miss Shu, but nothing happened. He held the winning ticket, stared at it. Something was wrong, he thought. It wasn't supposed to happen like this. Rain clouds gathered over the flower city of Iwu. He stared up at the sky, but they were just ordinary rain clouds.
Area Controller D will be with you shortly. Please wait. Lottery Sub-Level 15 was a mix of physical reality and the virtual. Disembodied demons moved through the air, whispering machine language instructions while forklifts drifted across the factory space moving heavy bags of coinage. And in the far end, the printing presses thumped and hummed, churning out sheets and sheets of promised miracles, which were then chopped neatly by other machines and sorted for delivery to the various stalls. In many ways, it could have been the quintessential Iwu market floor, small-scale manufacturing, large-scale distribution. Only here, they didn't sell bath mats or doorknobs. They sold miracles. He wondered what they did with all the coins. Only how long will it be, he said. This is very important. Please wait. Area Controller D will be with you shortly. Esham touched the bruise on his cheek. There had been trouble the night before. He'd been careless. A customer came past shortly after, and they saw he held a winning ticket. He tried to explain, but he didn't know how. Word spread. The rumor went around that there was a winning ticket up for grabs, even though everyone knew the lottery didn't work that way. They came to gawk at his lottery stand, only a few at first, then more, until it was more like a mob that surrounded him. Night fell, and the air had a wild, festive feel to it, but mixed with a sense of unpredictability. People lit torches and drank beer and by Joe. Fights broke out. People kept shouting questions at him. He couldn't leave. Then a group of young men set on him. They demanded to see the ticket. He tried to shut the booth, but they started pushing it, rocking it from side to side. Esham tried to slip out, and someone pushed him, and he fell. The mood turned ugly. He looked up and saw their faces, lit and hungry. He curled up into a ball. He'd been kicked before. The key was to try and minimize the damage. They started landing blows, fists, feet. Then someone shouted, Leave him alone! It was Isa from the market. She came in, fearless, and stood over him and faced down the bullies. Go away, she told them. Which, remarkably, they did. She helped him to his feet. Are you all right? He tried to smile, though it hurt. Here, she said, you're bleeding. She sat him down on a bench and cleaned the cut in his face. His ribs hurt from the kicking. The city shone overhead in a million lights. Thanks, Issa. We've got to look after each other, she said. Or who else will? 
He nodded. He felt very tired. They sat together on the warm bench under the petal zones of the city, side by side, in companionable silence. I must speak to the area controller, Esham said. It had taken him hours to find the lottery regional office. He'd had to pass through miles of near-identical corridors, through stalls which sold miniature models of folding Beijings, fish from Lijiang and flowers from Shazui, perky pat dolls bound for Mars and replica guns from Isher, anti-spiritual pollution spray in aluminum cans, some Sero wheels that played a song as they were spun, and little self-assembly spacecraft models from General Products. A sea of kipple, an endless rolling expanse, heap upon heap of old stuff someone, somewhere, simply couldn't let go of. At last he found the door. It was just a door. I must speak to the area controller, he said. The door seemed to hesitate. This is most irregular, it said. The situation is most irregular, Isham said with more force than he meant to. I'm sorry, he said. Don't mention it, said the door. Can I come through? The door hesitated. We're very busy right now, it said. This is important. I am sure, the door said in a maddeningly reasonable voice, that it seems very important to you. It sighed. I wasn't always a door, you know, it said. I used to be a poet. It reflected for a while. Still, I like being a door. Sometimes you're open, sometimes you're closed. There's very little in between. I find that comforting, don't you? Me? Well, you're not a door, the door said. So, I suppose you wouldn't understand. It seemed to reflect again. Oh, well, it said at last. But don't say I didn't warn you. The door irised open. Esham stepped through. The corridor felt like an access tube strung over some enormous height. The accordion walls contracted and expanded, and the whole passage seemed to move as though buffeted by unseen wind. He stumbled along it, holding onto the walls to stay upright. Lights flashed overhead. A mechanical voice kept counting. Incomprehensibly, Esham came to the end of the corridor. He stepped through.
For a moment, he had the sense of galactic space all around him. He saw a planet adorned with rings and fireflies in formation all around it. And the sun far against the endless dark, a lone yellow star. Then it vanished and the voice stopped the count and a new voice said, Welcome to Lottery Sub-Level 15. Vendored human type as Shamudin. Area Controller D will be with you shortly. He looked around him at this ordinary floor. It could have been any market level in Yiwu, though he was suddenly certain he was nowhere near Yiwu, not even on Earth, maybe. There were windows in the far walls. He could see a night sky, but not much else. Height, though. He was high up in a skyscraper, somewhere foreign. He was almost sure. He began to walk to the windows. If only he could see. Sir, come with me, please. Area Controller D was a short, fat man in a checkered shirt with one button too many undone and thinning black hair that stuck to his forehead. He mopped his face and pushed the basket of food on his desk toward Isham. Bronze? Grease shone on his fingers. Isham shook his head. No, thank you. Suit yourself. D ate fast. When he finished, he let out a satisfied burp and wiped his fingers clean on a dirty napkin. So, he said, what is this all about? Sir, Esham said, do you mind if I ask where we are? The lottery building, area controller D said. But where? I mean, what department? The lottery is the lottery. Area Controller D said. Yes? Yes, sir. Now, could you get to the point? I don't have all day. It's about this ticket, sir. It's a winning ticket, sir. A winning ticket. Let me see. D took the scratch card from him. He looked at it and pursed his lips. His eyes glazed for a moment as he accessed his node. Ah, yes, he said. Defunct. Defunct, sir? It was an error, D said. Don't worry about it. So, it didn't work? But Miss Shu... Miss Shu? D said. The woman who purchased it, sir. Not human, D said. Not human, sir. Automaton. Replica. He waved his hand. X display. X display? Do you just repeat everything anyone ever says to you? D said. Yes, sir. I mean, no, sir. Sir, what do we do here? What is the lottery for? Area controller D unwrapped a lollipop and stuck it in his mouth. He sucked on it noisily, then took it out with a... The lottery's the lottery, he said. 
with an air of satisfied finality. Arrows led him back the way he'd come across the floor. Far in the distance, he saw an old mechanical slatboard that kept clacking, with figures that kept changing for Mars, Lunar Port, Titan, Hyperion, Nix, and Earth, of course. The same mechanical voice returned. 8,000.268. Droning on. Esham came to a door and stepped out onto a street in Iwu. It was late afternoon. The sun was low against the mountains. The petals of the city rose in the sky. He was in a quiet residential neighborhood, not far from Zone 7. As he stood there, he saw Miss Yu cross the street. She walked in that same assured, unhurried pace. She didn't see him. She came to a small house with a well-tended front garden and a little white fence. Two children came running out to greet her, and Esham thought he saw the outline of a man waiting at the door. Miss Shu went in with the children. Esham came a little closer. He peeked through the windows, which were open to let in the breeze. He saw them sit down at the dinner table, the children talking animatedly, Miss Shu smiling quietly. The man said something and she laughed. Esham left them to have their privacy. He walked back to his stall and saw that Isa was there, waiting for him. I thought I'd take you out to dinner, she said. I'd like that, Esham said. What shall we have, she said. She laughed. (laughs) Whatever is your true heart's desire. So, they shared crossing the bridge noodles at the Yunnanese stall, and then they had sweetened mint tea the Lebanese cafe. And then, together, they went home. I knew from the very beginning that this was a story that I I wanted to read and because I I knew, somehow I knew that by the end of this story, our protagonist would indeed get his heart's desire. And I'm a sucker for a happy ending. I, I, I love that, that, that Esham never plays the lottery, right? That that's for other people. That, that happiness, one's true heart's desire, that's for other people. That's, that's, those dreams are for suckers, right? Those dreams are for the ones who, who really don't know or, or are willfully blind to the truths about life, that life is hard and, and, and then we die. 
And yet, he feels like he's so deserving to me, a man so deserving of having his heart's desire and finding out that it was nothing more, something really simple than a girl from his hometown to love him, right, Um, and share time with. I love that ending. I love that he got his heart's desire without even knowing how much he wanted it. And the idea that we are all in some wacky way the potential heart's desire of each other. I believe that we all have a gift to give and that part of that that process is delivering that gift and then seeing where the feedback comes from the universe, how that gift impacts on other people and then what their response to that initiating, inciting event of your gift seeing what that is. I, I, I believe in the exchange of energy, human to human, human to animal, uh, human to plant. I believe in that conversation. And maybe that's where uh, the magic comes from. And in that sense, we're all potential lottery winners. We just have to scratch each other's tickets. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the best in the business, Julia Smith. Our assistant producer is Audrey No. Our editing and sound designer by Misha Stanton. And thanks to our consulting producer, Mr. Adam Dybert. Sam Kiefer provided his engineering expertise for today's episode. Thank you, Sam. And I am very grateful to La Vie Tidar for allowing me to read his story today. Originally published at Tor.com. LaVie has a brand new novel out this November entitled Unholy Land, available from Tachyon Press. You can go check him out at lavietidar.wordpress.com. That's L-A-V-I-E-T-I-D-H-A-R.wordpress.com to see what else he's up to. Now, do you like this podcast? Okay, I thought so. But if you want to help other people find it, it's so easy to do. Just leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And in your review, why not drop me a story that you'd like to hear on the pod? We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story. Or if you can't wait that long, well, you can indulge in the next episode right now and exclusive bonus author interviews to boot on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up one week early, ad-free. Simply go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar, or if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and Jenny Radelette of the Flying Radelette Sisters. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. And for the children in your life, check out LeVar Burton Kids' Skybrary app with books and videos at LeVarBurtonKids.com. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher.
For the next 15 seconds, picture yourself in a small town. Historic buildings with galleries, restaurants, micro distilleries, forested ridgelines on the horizon, wide alpine meadows, evergreen forests threaded with trails, friendly locals eager to guide you. And if you're not quite ready to leave this fantasy, chances are you're our kind. And you should check out visitparkcity.com right away. Park City, Utah, for the mountain kind. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.